So Wes picked a really good time to cancel church for rain and uh, left me with the divorce passage of Matthew. So you, uh, have, you're stuck with an unattractive, uh, not as winsome person to convey this. So God help us. Matthew 19, let's start verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The word of the Lord. So, as we consider this passage this morning in our secular humanistic world that has placed a premium on personal fulfillment, self-gratification, it certainly has colored the way we look at everything. And we are not immune to that colorization. The same way a fish, again, does not know how wet it is, we sometimes are unaware of how much we've been influenced by the wrong-headed idea of love and marriage. The wrong-headed idea of love and marriage. We're going to treat this passage in the classical way that it demands, but we're also going to seek to understand, or should I say, recapture the idea and the function of biblical love, marriage, and family, because I believe that's exactly where Jesus takes us in this passage. He takes us all the way back to the original creational intent. And again, we've gotten so far away from that creational intent as a culture, and again, we've imbibed much of that crazy culture in the church at large, and uh, we see things like a divorce rate that is consistent with those who don't claim to be of Jesus. We see unruly, disobedient children, and a culture where honor and sacrifice are dismissed, completely ignored for selfish satisfaction. Honor and sacrifice. See, it used to be in a, in a saner time that we were disgusted to hear of a man who left his wife and children because he couldn't suppress his lustful desires and personal 
selfishness for the sake of his family. And this word again, very important, sacred honor for his honor and the honor of his family name in the culture generally, Western civilization. Honor, as a history teacher, and for most of human history, was put at a premium. Men, especially men, were willing to die and subject themselves to the most heinous torture rather than lose their honor and be shamed. Again, we have gotten so far from this that it's almost unrecognizable in this culture. Not just men, but when a wife leaves the sanctity of the marriage bond because she was no longer happy. We've heard that, haven't we? On both sides. Or the excitement or lust that we falsely identify as love, we'll get to, is no longer present. So steaming headlong into deluded happiness, they leave a wake of devastation and destruction and dysfunction. I teach in an alternative school, very sad, behind them. I think it, it's important to say when God looks to convey the most disgust and derision that he can, what example does he use? Well, he uses the example of an unfaithful, whoring wife. Read Ezekiel for more proof. And again, we should feel revulsion at these things, but most of the culture, we've seen this in action, barely gives attention to it before they make conciliating arguments about how much, again, happier, happier the person is who devastated their family and broke their vow to Almighty God. But, but I'm happy. I just wasn't happy. And here as we look at the text, it's interesting because in the first century we see much of the same played out in the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, don't we? Human nature doesn't change. Sin nature doesn't change without the grace of Almighty God. It just finds new and creative ways to express itself in every epoch of time. Sinful desires will out. And they always seek to justify themselves and validate themselves. Again, wicked hearts trying to find ways to excuse their selfish desires. And here in this scene in the text, at the same time, we have the Pharisees trying to push Jesus into a corner to be attacked by one faction or the other. We'll, we'll talk about that historical context. But as Jesus does so very often, he figuratively backhands the questioners with his answer. And he takes the question all the way back to the beginning all the way back to the beginning of creation and gives answer. But we, we can't lose the motif and we won't lose the motif that in the book of Matthew, Matthew is communicating to us again that Jesus is the true Israel of God. He is doing what Israel should have done. He's succeeding where they failed and he's recapitulating or reenacting all the ways that Israel walked through their time. He's doing it rightly. They did it wrongly. He is the type or the anti-type of that which was before him. And we see here, Jesus leaves the northern part 
of the Levant, where during the divided kingdom, we know that that was the northern kingdom of Israel. And we've seen Jesus as Elijah. We've seen him as the greater Elisha, feeding and healing and pronouncing. But now Jesus comes back into Judea. The region that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. It's where Jesus comes back to. And as Jesus comes back to Judea, we see him now as the greater Jeremiah. The greater Jeremiah, which in other Gospels, we see this easily because Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, right? Jeremiah is the weeping prophet who weeps for the disobedience of his people. And we know that Jesus reenacts this as well, don't we? We remember the scene where Jesus looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. And he says, oh, that you would come to me and I would gather you under my wings like a, a hen does with her chicks. So here we have Jesus returning as the greater Jeremiah, saddened, weeping, but pronouncing judgment nonetheless to the city that stones the prophets and kills those sent to him, and albeit through tears. But here in this reenactment or this recapitulation, we want to draw specific attention because it's not an accident. Matthew draws specific attention again to the issue of divorce. Because as we know, in the book of Jeremiah, we have Yahweh giving an angry threat to his unfaithful wife Israel to get out of his sight, to send her away because she's continually unfaithful. So this brings us back to that understanding and that idea. So divorce is brought up again here in Matthew 19, and all these things are happening at once. To set the scene, Jesus is being tested by the Pharisees. It's not a multiple choice, but testing carries with it the negative connotation. They're, they're trying to get him. They want to play gotcha with Jesus. They, they're interested in his answer, yes. They want to know where he falls. But more importantly, they want him to make enemies by answering it, right? Inevitably, they want Jesus to have more enemies. And that's what they were doing along with getting an answer. Because at that time, there were two schools of rabbinical thought on divorce. Two schools of rabbinical thought on divorce. And those two schools were Hillel and Shammai. Those two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, had their interpretation of what was allowable for divorce. What was allowable for divorce. An intramural debate down through the centuries over Deuteronomy 24. You don't have to turn there. We'll read it. Deuteronomy 24. Moses says, if a man marries a wife and then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. The key word uncleanness in her he may give her a bill of divorce and send her out of his house so Deuteronomy 24 was the hot issue specifically the word uncleanness this was the word that all arguments hinged upon the Jewish rabbi Shammai maintained that uncleanness here referred to adultery that adultery was in view here and this was the accepted rule for divorce. But the school of Hillel, this was the predominant prevailing understanding at the time. This is what won the day, obviously. 
<coughs> the popular majority view was that the word uncleanness was quite literally subject to the husband's opinion and his caprice. So the husband could define uncleanness however he wished. So if he found some uncleanness in her, that was grounds for sending her away. Very, very subjective. We've all heard the famous, maybe we haven't, the famous first century example in this debate of the wife being put out for burning the dinner one too many times, haven't we? This was what was under debate. Can we put our wives out for burning the dinner one too many times if we find that unfavorable or unclean in our eyes? The, the Hillel's answer was, yeah, absolutely, you can. Send her away. Deuteronomy 24, we're good. So this is what Jesus finds himself in the midst of when the question is posed and he answers it by going back to creation again. Is it lawful, Jesus, to divorce one's wife for any cause? Hillel, right? I mean, that's what predominates. Jesus goes all the way back again to the very beginning to give answer. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, together, excuse me, let no man separate. The Pharisees were not satisfied with this answer, were they? They didn't like it. So they jumped immediately back to Deuteronomy 24. They said, well, let's not start at the beginning. Let's start here. Why then did Moses command one to give her, being a wife, a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why do we have that then, Jesus? What's that about? Why are you going all the way back to the beginning forever? One man, one woman, all that stuff. Again, they wanted to start at the place that best served their selfish desires and they didn't want to travel all the way back with Jesus to the beginning. But Jesus was establishing the pattern for marriage as a lifelong union where the two actually become one flesh. And what God has made, no man should separate. And again, the Pharisees understood exactly what Jesus was doing. They didn't like it, so they doubled down on Deuteronomy. They said, we're not concerned with the way out, or rather, we're not concerned with the creational intent. We're more concerned with the way out. Not so much the intention. Give us the exception. Give us the loophole. Why then did Moses say this? Why are we sending wives away with certificates of divorce? How can this be, Jesus? Is Moses contradicting God? Surely, this is the loophole we're looking for. Affirm it. Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus' response to why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart. Moses allowed 
you to divorce your wives. But again, from the beginning, it was not so. So we have a, a difference in verbs in the two statements, don't we? Command allow. The Pharisees say that Moses commanded divorce, and Jesus says Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of sinful hearts. God's creational design was one of lifelong union, but because of sin and the fall and destruction, God made concession for the hardness of sinful hearts. The, the Torah, the law of God, assumes, given after the fall of Adam, and again, it takes into account sinful hearts and situations. But the law, again, does express God's ideal. But in his kindness, he makes provisions for a hard hearted people, a hard hearted people. Again, must be redundant. Jesus says marriage is for life. That is God's intention. That's what he said at the beginning. That is what ought to be. But because we are who we are, God has made accommodation for us in a specific case. And we'll deal with that one specific case shortly. And if you're anything like me, when I hear the specific case, I want to know immediately the exception to the rule. I'm like the Pharisees, right? You give me a rule, I want to know the way out. You tell me a principle, I want to find the one thing that contradicts it. And we're all like that to some degree, aren't we? We immediately want to think about all the things that break that rule. I'm obsessed with it sometimes. God help me. And I, I personally believe that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in the predominant school of Hillel. Because even the disciples at the end give this away. Well, who could marry? With that answer, Jesus, what, what are you saying? Again, we have an exception, and we immediately start arguing from the exception, forgetting that the exception proves the rule. It's not the rule, because we can't bear and abide a rule without identifying its exceptions. Human nature. Again, they wanted an easy way out. In this direction, if they had a wife who was frigid, incompetent housekeeper, and displease them regularly, get out, gone, Send them a bill of divorcement and send her away. Their pleasure, again, their pleasure, their happiness, their subjective understanding of this was literally the measuring stick of a successful marriage. And if there were any uncleanness in her defined by them, they could terminate the contract with a piece of paper and say goodbye. And the question, are we not unlike this today? Are we not unlike this today? In the world that we live in, of no-fault divorce, divorce for any reason whatsoever, subjective caprice, whatever makes me happy, let's pay the money, sign the paper, and, and be on and take 50% of whatever somebody else has because I can. It's the same world we live in today. Sinful hearts continue to express themselves in sinful ways. But again, we are treating this classically, but more importantly, this may be a review for many. When we think about love, biblical 
love and what we're, whatever this is we're dealing with today. We have to identify those two things, and I think that's important this morning, so we're going to spend some time there. Again, we've literally elevated our own happiness to the place of utmost importance, and we, like the Pharisees in the school of Hillel, measure success and failure by something as fickle, capricious, volatile, inconsistent as our emotions. Our emotions rule. Our emotions change. But we've sat that in the seat of authority in this nonsense that we live in today. And we, we've compounded the problem by buying a ridiculous bill of goods when it comes to what we believe love is. What we believe love is. And we have effectively, someone may have a better working definition than this who's more articulate, but we've effectively redefined love as the feeling that I get when that person I interact with makes me feel good, elated, gleeful, excited, exhilarated, etc., 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 right? We've confused lust with love. And we have come to believe that euphoric feeling of satisfaction and contentedness that we receive from another person is love, is love. And we take that so far as to believe at the moment in a marriage when that feeling is no longer present, and those of you who have been married for a long time know how quick that could be, amen? When that feeling is no longer present, we suspect that the love is no longer valid or it's gone. We, it's gone. Love's gone. If that's how we define love. Again, we've taken this selfish emotional phenomenon and made it the basis for one, entering into a marriage. Most people in today's world enter into a marriage based solely on the feelings that that person impels in them, brings up in them. No other due diligence is done that person makes me feel good. Let's get married. Disaster. And two, we make that feeling or that understanding of love the fuel that is supposedly to keep the candle of love burning throughout the duration of our marriages. And when it no longer is there, we can exit. So we have falsely subscribed to a pagan definition or myth of love as some unstoppable force that we have no control over. It's what love is in our culture. And that unstoppable force that we have no control over is personified every February by a little fat cherub that shoots an arrow of overwhelming and uncontrollable desire at you and impels you with the feeling that you yourself are not even in control of. That, that's love. Cupid. We hear, we fell in love. We've heard that. We've said, I've said it. We fell in love. What does that mean? Have we ever, have we ever stopped to examine what that means? We fell in love. What word picture does that bring up? Is it, is it like walking down the road, looking forward, and all of a sudden you step into a manhole? And in the sewer you look up, here I am, this is what it is. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. I didn't plan on this today, but here I am, so be it. But 
words have meaning, and we have to define their meaning. And when we look at the word fall or falling, it almost always and without exception implies something negative, doesn't it? It is loss of control. Unfortunate happening. Majorly negative. Except, except when we use it with regard to our flawed definition of love. Or deliberate, deliberate contrivance. And I, I would be more inclined to say this is deliberate language because, very, very importantly, if we have no control over something, then we cannot be held responsible for that something, right? If we have no control over something, then we cannot be held responsible for that something. We can actually hold ourselves blameless and guiltless when we find ourselves struck with irresistible urges to fall into the arms of another woman who delivers to us those feelings of euphoria, love, that we've lost in the former relationship or have lessened in our marriage because that's the measurement of what love is there for. It's gone. It's got to come from somewhere else. Christians, we, we have to know that's fickle, ridiculous, and absurd. Fickle, ridiculous, and absurd. The conception of love as an uncontrollable force that strikes unexpectedly and leads us around out of our control again is the prevailing understanding of what love is today. The foundation for marriage and the continuance of that marriage. That is what it is. And this is oftentimes, we've heard it, we work in the real world. In conversations with divorced couples or people who are being separated, you know, they're going through the legal process, we often hear things like, again, we just fell out of love. Or, I've heard this before, it, it's nobody's fault. We just don't love each other anymore. What? What about the three children and the ten years and the covenant vow you took before God? And the things you have together, the one flesh you've become. It doesn't matter because we fell out of love. We just don't feel the same way anymore. And my emotions are the arbiter. We'll figure something else out. But we as believers in Christ, the one who spoke all things into existence, created the original intent for this institution of marriage Praise God, we do have control over love. Amen? We do have control over love. Because biblical love is not a transient emotion, but a conscious act of the will. Again, biblical love is not a transient emotion, but a conscious act of the will. I, this is another phrase that helps make this point. We've heard, and I've heard it in a song from some of my students, uh, the ridiculous phrase of the, the heart what wants what it wants. That's a song, right? I've heard that. Not only is it a song, we've heard it for generations. The heart wants what it wants. Again, it is that ridiculous notion that you're out of control of what your heart wants. That is if you identify the heart as this unthinking organ that is pulled along by the reins of Cupid's fate. 
The heart, uncontrollable emotional center that takes us where we don't want to go unexplainably sometimes. But in the Hebrew, Barrett, you can help me with this too. In the Hebrew, the biblical usage for the word heart, if I pronounce this wrong, fix me. Leb or lebab, which carries with it the meaning of the inner mind, or get this, the will. The will. Or resolution or determination. That's what the heart is in biblical usage. So when we think of biblical love, we understand it to be willful, resolute action. Willful, intentional, thought out, resolute, definite action. That's what the heart is. It's what the meaning conveys. So again, we've, we've bought a nonsensical bill of goods to our detriment as, again, the world always sells us. And sadly, we're apt to drink it down. Love does engage the will, and it's not devoid of intention or direction. We have to know that. The best definition, I, I just steal this one. I'll give credit where credit's due. The best definition I've ever seen of biblical love is from a pastor named Vodi Bauckham. Vodi Bauckham. I love that man. He's, uh, he's meant much to me over the years. And if you've had, not had the opportunity to read or listen to Vodi Bauckham, I recommend him on family and homeschool. Excellent, excellent. Please read him, listen to him. Excellent stuff. But to steal his definition, which I think is the best, concise, succinct definition of biblical love, love is an act of the will. This is important. Accompanied by emotion, right? Because we get so caught up in the emotional aspect of it that we put it in the driver's seat. But biblical love is not devoid of emotion. It is accompanied by emotion. It's not emotion itself. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So we must understand love biblically. Again, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Pastor Bodie Bach. Action. Love is action. We've heard it. Love is a verb, right? We've heard that song. DC Talk. Is anybody from the 90s in here? No. What is the action? What is the action? Well, as we've talked about over and over and over the past two years, the actions are the commandments of God. What he requires of us. What he tells us to do with regard to our lives and our marriages. That's how we measure. That's how we measure. 1 John 5, 3 again. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. We do what he says. And his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands in all things. Do it. Husbands are commanded to love and honor their wives as the weaker vessel. Do it. We are all commanded to be faithful 
to the wife of our youth. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't do it. When we can look rightly at marriage and its creational intent, we see clearly. We see clearly. Now this next statement, happy it could be me, has proven to be off-putting and offensive in this day and age. Much like the word submission, right? In this insane feminist culture, that word is like nails on a chalkboard in most forums. Again, this, this some, is somewhat offensive in, in today's day and age. Should not be with those who follow Christ. But this was in earlier times accepted as self-evident matter of fact. Especially in, in Christendom, Western civilization. When we enter into a biblical marriage, we have a transcendental, I like this, duty. Duty to perform rather than a right to self-satisfaction that we demand. Again, this was axiomatic and self-evident for much of Western civilization's history. When we enter into a biblical marriage, we have a transcendental duty to perform rather than a right to self-satisfaction that we demand. Robert E. Lee, one of my favorite historical character, characters, I'll take on all comers on this one, but he said one of my favorite quotes, duty is the sublimest word in the English language. Duty is the sublimest word in the English language. And we as Christians ought to agree with that. We ought to agree. Because God created marriage for several reasons. And one obvious reason is for the creation and care of godly children to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I say obvious again in the culture we live in. It's not so obvious. Dog moms and, and such. And Malachi 2 says, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one? One portion of the Spirit in their union? One? And what was the one God seeking? We know the next answer. Godly offspring. Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Marriage and the institution of the family is meant to be the foundation for all society. The smallest part that makes up everything else. Marriage and family is the foundation for all of society and all its component parts. It is the basis and shaper of all other institutions. And again, when you destroy the family, which there has been a deliberate successful attempt to do over many generations, you are left with the mess that we're in today. Subjectivism prevails. I'm a dog, therefore I am. Again, marriage is not primarily a vehicle for our personal fulfillment and gratification. Those things are present, amen? They are present, 
But if we cannot shake the nonsense that we have learned, listened to, and prevails, uh, then we're guaranteed to be miserable like 53% of all marriages today. If we're focused on I, I, that's an iPhone, iPod, we see it. We will never find satisfaction, but if we give our lives away, biblical love, if we intentionally give our lives away, Jesus says our joy will be full. So this isn't about me. It's not about you. It's about him, our Savior. And what does he want? Obedience. He wants obedience. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Don't say, don't call me Lord and do not what I say. Again in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be full. That your joy may be full. That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has none than this, that someone lay down their life for their friend. So we're always, always concerned about our happiness. Me too. And if I'm not happy, I've failed. Or it's failed. Or there must be something better. But we know that Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Doesn't he? He says, in this life you will have trouble. They hated me, they'll hate you, etc., etc. Suffering. Bear up. So, in marriage, obedience to God, obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ is where we find joy. How else could Paul say, if you have an unbelieving spouse, don't leave her. Don't leave them. Who knows? Maybe your faithfulness will be their salvation. But, but I'm not happy. Well, it doesn't matter. Your joy is in the Lord. Your joy is in the Lord. Lay down your life for a friend. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, he came to be served. He came to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Lay down your life for a friend. Greater love hath no man than this. Who's your best friend? Spouse? And again, we, we have to come back to this point. Duty is not devoid of joy. Duty is not devoid of joy. We are called to do our duty. Again, in earlier times, men especially would rather die than fail in their duty. I mean, can we even conceive of that today? It's, it's so foreign to us that as I'm teaching history, it's almost hard to convey the meaning because there's no touch point for this anymore. Honor outweighed all. Honoring Jesus outweighs all. 
accompanied by emotion. This duty is accompanied by emotion. If you say I'm emotionless, no, you're not. No, you're not. There are many things in your life that uh, bring you emotion, make you emotional. Find those things and apply them to your marriage. Again, marriage and children provide the perfect setting for you to give your life away. Or to lay your life down, as Jesus says, literally and figuratively every single day, doesn't it? The, the institution is made so that we can experience those things. We give of ourselves so that we can serve the other. And in so doing, we follow the commands of God and our joy may be full. So when I come home in the evening, I have three boys, all under five, and they all have my stubborn orneriness. Pray for my wife. I see that she has literally given her life away in every conceivable way all over the house to the three boys with my ornery jeans. Marriage and family does that necessarily. She's sacrificed those things. She likes to paint. She likes to do other things. But she wipes butts, changes diapers, cleans up messes, teaches the truth because she's serving the people that she loves. She's serving the people that she loves. My, my wife and I have talked about this. She's not here today because we have a flat tire again. Mothers, when their children are infants, literally have the life sucked out of them by those infants. They are literally providing the life, the life-giving sustenance from their own bodies to their children. Literally giving their life away for their children. And there, there's hardly a more beautiful picture than that. And we all know the experiences in our own lives where we gave ourselves for the good of our spouse and family and we could share endlessly these things and it'd be wonderful and a blessing to all and maybe a potluck will do it. But we, we know that marriage and family sanctifies us necessarily. We can't understand it until we experience it. So there's that. Self-sacrifice is the rule, not self-satisfaction. When we find ourselves in the self-satisfaction category, we're wrong. Laying down your life every day for your family and in obedience to Christ, again, is not devoid of emotion. Don't take me to say this is emotionless, cold duty. Strap on your revolver and march forward. Yes, there are aspects of that, but again, we are commanded to love, honor, respect, obey, submit, all the things that our Lord tells us to do, and that requires emotion. And even in those hard times, and we've all experienced them, if we haven't, wait. Wait. No matter the circumstances, when we do what our Lord commands us to do, He says, joy. Joy, maybe not necessarily happiness, that fleeting emotion, but a deep joy that cannot be taken. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do we believe him when he says that? Statistically, the answer is no. Even in Christendom, sadly, may we not be found in that statistical category. Lastly, before we get to the exception, and most importantly, marriage represents unbreakable, unending covenant love 
that Christ has for his church. His bride. His bride. Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this is a mystery. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The greatest illustration that God uses that most resembles the unending love that Christ has for his bride that he suffered, bled, and died to secure is marriage. Is marriage. When someone looks at the institution, that is what it was intended to point to. Jesus says he'll always be with us, even to the very end. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Marriage. That's what it points to. And every time we fail in that, we fail at the picture and example that marriage was intended to illustrate. Jesus says to the Pharisees when they want to identify as many escape routes as possible from the marriages that they wanted to get out of, Jesus says, from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning it was not so. This is not the creational intent. God's creational intent was one man, one woman for life as one flesh. That's the intent. No longer completely distinct as two separate persons, but one flesh in the sight of God. God joins them together. Do not let any man separate them. So here, here comes the uncomfortable part. Where we have to deal sadly with the hardness of people's hearts as Christ identifies in Matthew 19. The hardness of people's hearts. Hardened hearts that seek to separate that which God has joined together. Sin brings destruction, brings death, brings, again, we're one flesh. The separation cannot be made into two separate entities again. It's a bloody, painful Horrible mess to do that. But because of the hardness of sinful hearts, Moses allowed. God made provision in a specific case for divorce. In verse 9 in Matthew's gospel identifies this case. Let's read it again. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Most of you know this, but the Greek word for sexual immorality, and we can have conversations about this, is porneia. And that word is where we get our English word pornography from. And what that word means is illicit intercourse. And for the sake of young ears, I will not explicate any further, but you take the meaning. This is sexual unfaithfulness. Adultery, a breaking of the covenant of marriage, the vows and the terms. The covenant of marriage, the vows and the terms. And for this instance, God made provision for divorce for the offended spouse. For the offended spouse. 
Now, in Matthew, what we just read, we have a gospel that is written to Jewish audience from a Jewish perspective. And the Jews still operated in a patriarchal way by God's design. And this allowed divorcement only in one direction. If you, you've read the other gospels, right? A man putteth away his wife. It goes in one direction. The husband could divorce the wife. In Mark's gospel, it gives us a different perspective. It was written, however, for a Gentile audience. And in Roman law, a woman could divorce her husband. No fault divorce, somewhat egalitarianism, even in the first century and before in Roman law. I wouldn't say it was necessarily egalitarianism being portrayed because it was more of a way for a wife's father to protect his wealth which upon divorce was remanded or returned to him. So it was, a, it was a loophole and clause for the patriarchal keeping of one's wealth in the event that the woman or the husband squandered it. So Mark 10 gives us the opposite perspective of these things. So all of our bases are covered from every perspective. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And... In the Roman world in which this was taking place, if she, the wife, divorced her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So again, Mark takes into account a Gentile audience and shows the possibility of divorce initiated and achieved by a woman. It's possible, was, is, and accounted for in the Holy Text. But what these two verses mean again is that any divorce for anything other than sexual unfaithfulness is not permitted. In fact, Jesus goes as far as to say, if you divorce your husband or your wife and remarry another person for another reason other than that is permitted, it says you commit adultery, you make her commit adultery, she commits adultery. No. Wes and I know these questions will certainly come and as this text will inevitably bring. But what the question of, I, I divorced for other reasons than that of unfaithfulness, adultery, porneia. And then I remarried. Am I continually committing adultery with my new spouse? It's a legitimate question and one that comes up frequently and one that causes much anxiety, and understandably. Again, we have to say that if divorce occurred for a reason that was anything other than porneia, then that remarriage was an act of adultery. But, but, we do not believe that the marriage is an act of perpetual adultery. We do not believe that that remarriage is an act of perpetual adultery. Again, it should not have been entered to given better understanding, but upon repentance and forgiveness, it is set apart and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank God. Because we believe that after the act of adultery, again, the act of adultery, not perpetual adultery, this new covenant and sexual union is a valid one before God. It's a valid one before God, set apart, cleansed, covenant. And there are several biblical reasons why we believe this will go with the couple since I'm already over time. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, he says to her, she has had 
Five husbands, right? Jesus said, you have had five husbands and the one you're living with presently, he's not your husband. He's not your husband. So we take that to mean or we believe that Jesus would not have identified those other four men as husbands if he did not consider those marriages to be valid, to be valid. In Deuteronomy 24, again, if she comes, excuse me, if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. So these two texts, I believe, are teaching us by implication the second marriage in Deuteronomy is a valid marriage because the text says she becomes another man's wife. She becomes another man's wife. And again, by implication, validates that marriage so much so. It validates it so much so that it would be an abomination for her to return to her first husband. Valid, binding covenant. Even if her second husband dies. Again, a divorce and remarriage for this reason is not perpetual adultery. Not perpetual adultery when repented of and washed clean. Holy covenant valid before God. We must not break it. The one other question, have a little time, sorry for going over. The other question that arises in this conversation is abandonment. Right? We've, we've dealt with abandonment. Is that grounds for divorce? Or most importantly, is that grounds for remarriage. And we, we get that argument, or people get that argument from 1 Corinthians 7. I'll read it. You don't have to go there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbeliever, this is beautiful, for the unbelieving husband is made holy, haggai, because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy, sanctified, in a covenantal way. Because of her husband. Praise God. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. Unclean. But as it is, my paraphrase, for the sake of you remaining in that marriage, not putting away or divorcing or leaving, for the sake of that, they are holy. In such cases, the brother, excuse me, but if the unbelieving partner separates, if they leave, let it be so. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know again, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
What amazing benefits for one partner in a marriage being a believer. Amen. Thank God for that. Again, many take this text to be an allowance for remarriage. Taking Paul in verse 15. In such cases, the brother and sister is not bound to mean that they are free to remarry. We don't believe Paul's teaching that here. We don't believe Paul's teaching that here. Remarriage simply is something that we do not see in this text. It's not there. It, it has to be assumed and enforced. And here's why. Verse 15, where Paul says that the believing spouse is not enslaved or bound. Many believe that this is permission to remarry. We, we don't believe that because to have it mean that would be to make Paul contradict himself in the preceding verses that we just read. He says, to stay married to your unbelieving spouse, to stay married to your unbelieving spouse, do not divorce, do not divorce. Do it because it might prove their salvation and it has a sanctifying effect on your children. So when we get to verse 15, we don't see him contradicting himself there. But what we, we do see is that if your unbelieving spouse is persistent in wanting to leave, 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 leave. And you've exhausted all your avenues and exhausted all your efforts to remain fixed to that person, bound. You are free to let them leave. You're not bound endlessly to force something that they will not have. And God has called you to peace. Paul, the lover of singleness, says that after he goes on his monologue of singleness. So again, we, we, don't, we can't get that from the text. We can't in good conscience counsel that way. Again, to use this as a proof text for remarriage is to demand of the text what it is not naturally giving us. In closing, we counsel to stay married. We counsel to stay married. God help us. Please pray for us. Because Jesus came to renew creation. Make it as it ought to be. He is making all things as they should be. Starting with us, we are made new and we are becoming more like him every day. And we are abiding in his love and taking on the creational intent for our lives, for our families. And we know exactly what God's intention for marriage is because Jesus just told us in Matthew 19. He said, a lifelong union that sanctifies and is a picture of the gospel. We who are already new creations are being made new, becoming fit for heaven and earth. We stay married. We raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, knowing that he desires godly offspring. And we have to believe this. We have to lean on this promise, even if we are married to an unbeliever. And again, we've heard the stories. We've heard the stories. We endure because how do we know if our faithfulness will save our spouse or not? Having one believing parent, Paul says, the children are holy. Don't leave. Don't divorce. Give them this benefit. Again, we, we no longer can, can't identify loves as, as this whimsical feeling, but it is an intentional act of the will and obedience to Almighty God. It is a dying to self in the process. It is deep affection. Again, it's not devoid of emotion. 
deep affection and joy are the result of trusting God. Mostly that deep affection that the world believes that we're supposed to initiate everything with actually comes as a result of the marriage institution that God has designed for us. We enter in and our living and loving and serving and dying to self together actually produces that which we think should initiate that marriage. We trust Him. May we be part of the solution to the pathetic, again, pathetic, disgusting view of marriage and family that affects, infects, not even affects, infects our society today like a plague. May we bring these words, honor and duty and responsibility back to this sacred covenant union of marriage where it belongs and, and not continue to abide feminized, placating half arguments and making conciliatory concessions, even tacitly for the cancer that is eating away at the moral fabric of our culture. Look at the results. Look at the results. And again, praise be to God. We also know that we live in a fallen world and hardness of heart abounds. So as we encounter situations where we must counsel and consider, we ask that you pray for us. Pray for us. We know that divorce has affected many, even here in this building right now. And we pray for you as we all move forward in God's grace and kindness. He's so good to us. We who are married engage the will, especially when it's hard. Especially when it's hard and we do our duty and our responsibility in obedience that we're called, commanded to do. If you love me, keep my commandments. And we do it because we love our king and he's told us to do it. And love keeps the commandments of our God and brings fullness of joy. Is it about happiness or is it about holiness which demands obedience? And again, may we take the marriage covenant union vow seriously, solemnly, which is a picture of Christ and his bride. Feel the weight of that duty, responsibility, and comport ourselves with honor to our king in the operation. Serve each other well because we're doing it all for the Lord. May we not, we pray. Again, I know in this crazy world we live in, many of these things are completely out of our control. And I hate it. I'm sorry. And we'll navigate it together when the time, if the time comes. May we not find ourselves for our parts, for our parts, with hard hearts because we have been given a heart of flesh. And Jesus loved and continues to love me, you, us, when we are completely unlovely, disgustingly unlovely. But while we were yet disgusting sinners, that's when, when Christ died for us. Amen? Let's pray.